What if in 2024, you got a little bit better every day? When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what you're doing. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just three weeks, imagine what you could do in a full year. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses are helping me learn real-life conversation skills in Spanish. It's getting so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, or speak to merchants. Studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove Babbel is better. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com SPP. That's right. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Your branding is the face of your business. Make a great impression with creative, professional designs from 99designs. Visit 99designs.com slash smart and get a power pack upgrade for free. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to Hey everyone, Chris here. One of the most important things I've learned from this podcast is that in order to really succeed at something, you have to love what you do. So how about it? Do you love your career? If not, what are you waiting for? Believe me, I know change and progress can be scary. I suffered from severe anxiety about trying to find work that I love, but there are steps you can take to achieve your goals. For the past year, I've been working with people to help them define their perfect future and then work to achieve it. If you want to take the first step towards your true calling, shoot me an email at chris at chrisstemp.com. We can set up a call and talk. No cost, no hooks, no pressure. I hope to hear from you. Now on to the show. Hey everybody, welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. I'm Chris Stemp. And I'm John Rojas. It's good to talk to you guys today. Hope you had a fantastic 4th of July. Saw some great fireworks. We had some cool ones here in D.C. John, where'd you go, actually, by the way? I went to the Air Force Memorial, those spires, and we just watched it over the Washington Monument. Oh, okay. Pretty fantastic. We were right next to the Iwo Jima. That's where I was. 
the Iwo Jima Memorial. Okay, in in Arlington. Yeah, yeah, right yeah. there. So we we're we we're right next to each other. Yeah, guys, tell us, shoot us an email at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail dot com. Let us know where you watch the fireworks. I feel like that's cool. We got an awesome email today from a listener who said, "Just wanted to let you know, you kind of changed my runs in the afternoon. I thought that was really cool too." Why didn't you pass this along to me? I didn't even see this one. You didn't? Oh, no. I responded. Oh, nice. We were pumped about that. So thanks, guys. We got a great episode. We're going to cruise into it today. Um, this week, we talk with Seamus Khan. Seamus teaches in the sociology department at Columbia University. He writes on elites and inequality in America. And along with Dorian Warren, he's the director of a Russell Sage Foundation working group on the political influence of economic elites, which is really cool. We link to it at smartpeoplepodcast.com. And Seamus is the man. He actually, he wrote a really cool book called Privilege, The Making of an Adolescent Elite at St. Paul's School. And we really talked to him about how we've all heard of the 1% now. It's been a big thing with Occupy Wall Street and all that stuff. But this kind of talks about growing up in an elite environment. And St. Paul's, apparently a lot of people know this, but it's this school in Concord, New Hampshire, and it's supposedly one of the most prestigious high schools in the nation that just breeds these elite leaders. But they also, when they go into the world, they face this issue of kind of not knowing what the real world is like. So we talked to Seamus about that. Really cool. We're going to hand it over to him here in a minute. But before we do that, head over to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Do not forget to sign up for the newsletter over there. We send out some cool stuff about every other week, maybe monthly, but it's good stuff that we're sending out. And also, if you like the podcast or if you love the podcast, head over to iTunes or Stitcher and leave us a rating. You know how much I love that and how much I appreciate it. You guys have been putting out awesome ratings. Keep that up. I really, really do appreciate that. All right. Here it is, Seamus Khan. Again, Seamus, thanks so much for being on the show. Uh, really excited to talk to you today about all the things you write about and your teaching at Columbia. And first, I kind of wanted to get an idea of your background from your point of view. Obviously, John and I have kind of read as much as we can soak up, but it's always interesting to hear it from your firsthand perspective. How did you get to where you are and why do you kind of study sociology and human behavior? So I think uh, the way in which I ended up in sociology is partially because of personal experiences that made me sort of more and more aware of inequality in, in the United States. So I grew up in a, I'd say like a pretty well-off family, but neither of my parents grew up in well-off families. So my dad is from Pakistan and my mom's from Ireland and they both immigrated here in the 70s. And they came from, I mean, really poor families, actually. So my mom, when she was uh, she she was born in 48. They cooked on an open hearth. They didn't have electricity. They pumped their own water from a well. And my dad's village, like I remember as a kid when they first got electricity. But my parents came here sort of upwardly mobile immigrants. My dad became a, a well-respected surgeon. My mom was a nurse. And I ended up going to a bunch of elite schools. So I went to this place called St. Paul's, which is probably one of the most elite boarding schools in the world. And so that experience sort of, I think there were two parts of it. First was just the huge difference between my experience growing up and my parents' experience growing up. And then secondly, after I left boarding school, went to college, sort of realizing that 
my experience was not like most other people's experiences. And that a lot of what marked my experiences was like a huge amount of advantage that I had in my life. So that made me more and more interested in inequality and, and basically the conditions of advantage. That's really interesting. And I definitely want to kind of talk about your time at St. Paul's. But first, I want to get an idea from you. When you went to St. Paul's or uh, when you went to college and you realized you had this wealthy, if you will, upbringing, did you also notice that you were one of the only ones that you were kind of first generation wealthy? Was Did that kind of make you stick out, all these people just generationally wealthy and elite? Yeah, I mean, actually, so the 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 experience I had at St. Paul's and even at these sort of elite schools was kind of in between. So the, you know, I I thought that I would be like not a typical kid at St. Paul's, um, and I think I was right about that. So, you know, my parents are not that rich; they're they're professionals, and so you know, it's not like I have a trust fund or anything like that. And a lot of the kids at St. Paul's are really rich. There was a kid who was there when I was there. I think he inherited like hundreds of millions of dollars when he turned 18. <laughs> and that was sort of a different world. But, you know, as the kid of two immigrants, uh, I don't know why I was put in this dorm, but the first dorm I lived in at St. Paul's was sort of like a minority student dorm. Almost all the kids there weren't white. And most of them were on financial aid. I wasn't on financial aid. And so I had this weird experience of being basically like one of the richest kids in my dorm, but among the sort of well-off people, one of the poorer well-off people at St. Paul's. And, you know, this sort of, you know, experience as a 14 year old was, was sort of jarring because I looked around me at, you know, the kid who inherited a lot of money was like a, an heir to the Vanderbilt and Whitney fortunes of the United States. And then the kids in my dorm, most of them were from, you know, they're basically from Harlem, the Bronx, you know, Bed-Stuy um, in Brooklyn before Bed-Stuy started gentrifying. And so, I guess like sitting in this in-between location is sort of what made me more aware of American inequalities. Hmm. Yeah, that is a very interesting kind of dichotomy that you're seeing there. And it, it really makes me wonder, because I was thinking, okay, did you go this route of kind of studying inequality, taking, I don't know if I want to say the road less traveled, but really turning things on their head and, and speaking out for inequality. Did you do that because you saw where you came from? So you had those roots? So uh, partially, I mean, I think that, um, you know, this, this began to be also sort of influenced by my own experience, initially looking at inequality in college, and then even in graduate school, where almost everybody who studies inequality looks at poverty. So in general, when we think about inequality, we think about poor people. And so, you know, for me, there was sort of, there were two basic problems with that. Uh, the first was, and a lot of scholars agree with me on this, that if you think about inequality by looking at poor people, you often suggest that there's something wrong with poor people that's making them poor. Um, and then the second is that like inequality is a relationship. So it's really the gap between the rich and the poor and we don't know that much about the rich, um, or at least we don't spend a ton of time studying them in comparison to studying the poor. And so for me, like, I think part of the reason why I became more acutely aware of inequality was also the ways in which we thought about inequality, they didn't quite map on to sort of the way in which I had become more aware of, of inequality, which was not by thinking about the condition of poverty, but actually by thinking about the condition of wealth and advantage. 
I, I'm really still, I'm fascinated by this idea of, because we, I'm sure we'll get into it, but you know, what your parents came from to the opportunity that they gave you. I think that's a, a storyline of many, even millennials. Like I know my dad was insanely poor. I mean, you know, eight kids, two parents in this two bedroom house, one bathroom, they got to take a bath like once a week or something. And to what, in just 20 years, he's provided, you know, the 20 years till he had me or whatever, what he's provided me, it's a fascinating thing. And and one of the things I wanted to ask you was oftentimes people I talk to about they're unhappy with their job and they have this guilt because it's actually a good job. I mean, it happened to me, right? You're making 50, 60, $70,000 at a fairly young age, yet you're still unhappy, but you feel guilty because there's others out there that would love that job. And I often wonder, is that because of in your studies, have you ever looked at this? Is it because of how you're raised or your expectations? And is it natural and normal to feel that way? I don't know that it's natural and normal. I mean, I think that part of the part of the challenge is the way in which we sort of valorize worth. So if you even just take the word worth, it has like two meanings. The first meaning is sort of asking yourself what a worthwhile life is. Like, what is it worth doing in the world? And the second meaning is how much money do you have? Um, that is, what is your total value of the assets that you control? And I think that, you know, one of the shifts that we've seen over the last 40 years is an elision of these two ideas. So we don't think of a good life that independent of a life where you make kind of a lot of money. And I, I think that like this monetary anxiety is actually a really important aspect of understanding the present situation here in the United States, even among millennials, because, you know, how is it that we define a good life, a successful life, I think has been hugely inflected by the ways in which we think about our worth as tied to, you know, basically what we can extract from a market. And so the anxiety of position is like, is, is really, really pronounced. You know, uh, Tocqueville wrote about this uh, in a kind of fascinating way. And he said, you know, one of the big, great problems with the march or advance of democracy is that everybody's basically equivalent. And when everybody's basically equivalent, we begin to be anxious about our position relative to others. And we begin to then think, how is it that we can mark ourselves as different or evaluate ourselves relative to others in a society? And the thing that we often fall back upon to do that is basically our, our checkbook or our income, the value that we can extract you know, in our employment, which shows how different we are from others and what our overall sort of social worth is. I got goosebumps there. I really did. Yeah, I've never really looked at it that way. It's so funny because I literally had a very similar thought. This is crazy. Nobody's even going to believe the uh, this statement. But I woke up last night at 4.30 in the morning. My fiance can vouch for this. And I started taking notes in my phone because I'm working on a lot of writing, looking at money that way almost. Uh, the thing that I kind of said in in my notes thing on my iPhone was that money is the easiest thing to tie yourself to. It's, it's much harder to understand your self-worth in terms of your beliefs or who you are deeply inside. Instead, you can just take the passive, easy route and say, well, I'll just define myself by my bank account and society thinks that's fine and I'll move on with that. Yeah, I mean, I also think what's interesting about, I mean, one of the reasons it's such a useful uh, way to think about things is that it actually has the same value uh, for everybody. So if you have $20 and I have $20, 
I can't buy different things. I mean, I can buy different things than you would want to buy. But if you want to buy, you know, a book that's worth $20, it costs the same thing for me. And that actually makes it a really useful way to sort of gauge people because it's really, really comparable. And in the social sciences, this is actually something we do all the time. So when we think about inequality, we always do it relative to income or wealth. Uh, so we say like, you know, what's the difference between black people and white people? How do we evaluate that in terms of inequality? It's how much money they have. What's the difference between men and women in terms of overall levels of equality? It's how much money they have. What's the difference between immigrants? What's the difference between the undocumented and the documented? What's the difference between, you know, any group of people? And we use, we use a sort of a dollar sign. And in a lot of ways, it makes sense because money is ambivalent to who you are. If you have $20, you have $20. But in many ways, it kind of absolves us from thinking about, you know, constructing for ourselves a kind of an accounting of our own worth that's independent of, of finances. It's really interesting because now in your research, what have you found to be some of the less known but just as important marks of inequality? So, I mean, funnily, I, I'm totally subject to what my, the criticism I just said. <laughs> uh, because I, uh, I mean, one, I have to have conversations with other people. But part of the thing that I work on is the ways in which shifts in American culture over the last 40 years have allowed us to sort of obscure some of the inequalities that we, we see today. So if you ask the average American how much equality is there in the United States, they kind of believe that they live in Sweden, which is one of the most equitable countries in the world. And they think that they should really live in a place that looks like a communist utopia. But the reality of the American condition is that we're one of the most unequal of the developed nations. And so what I'm interested in is how it is that uh, this has happened and how it is that wealthy people sort of think through this uh, experience of, of wealth. And a lot of what I point to is the ways in which elite Americans have ceased to be a class and increasingly define themselves as a group of talented individuals. And what I mean by that is that um, if we think back to like FDR or even JFK, those guys had a kind of patrician quality to them. JFK's accent um, or FDR sort of uh, self-presentation they sort of presented themselves as like belonging to a group, a group of people who were leaders or who were elites and who were sort of different than most other Americans. And, you know, they had their own places that they vacationed. They had their own cultural tastes. Um, they had their own sort of waspy dispositions. And in that sense, I sort of thought of, think of them as like a class, a group of people who's defined by their social connections, their cultural tastes, things like that. And um, one of the things that elites today do is decreasingly define themselves as a class and increasingly think of themselves as a group of really talented individuals. So it's not shared social networks or shared culture or anything like that that defines them. They're actually just really talented people. And in this sense, part of what I argue in my work is that elites are people who've sort of most seized upon the cultural rhetoric of civil rights movements and the rights movements of the 60s, were actually, which were actually used to confront elites, where, you know, to think in terms of Martin Luther King, it's not the color of your skin or it's not the class background and family that you have, but instead the content of your character that defines mm -hmm. you. And I don't think this actually defines elites, but I think elites have embraced this rhetoric 
in ways that have been very useful for them in, in terms of advancing their social position. And that's super interesting. Now, I'm wondering if you would then say it's possible to be well, extremely wealthy, but not elite. And is it possible to not be wealthy and be elite just due to the way you act? Um, so, I mean, you know, th I guess this is kind of a definitional thing for me. Um, and I, I think of like elites as people who have an immense control over access to a resource and that resource has to have some transferable value. And so like, you know, the, the idea there is like, we can all have access to a resource, but it might not be that valuable. So if I'm the greatest uh, jump shooter in the world, I'm probably going to do pretty well. Um, if I'm the greatest jump roper in the world, it doesn't really matter that much. And, and so like different resources have different kinds of values. And what elites are, are people who have a lot of control over some kind of resource. And through that, they can basically use it to advance their, their position. So, you know, that resource could be that like, you know, I'm a cultural arbiter of taste and maybe I'm not that rich, but I can help decide like what the new next, you know, restaurant initiative is going to be or something like that. Or I could be really, really well uh, connected um, with other people. And um, it just so happens that people who have a lot of one resource, cultural, social, economic, tend to have lots of others as well. So we can think of these as like different currencies that have exchange rates, you know, some people are holding on to dollars. Other people are holding on to euros. Other people are holding on to yen. And as societies develop, they sort of these currencies begin to have different values. So sometimes money has the most value. Other times, like status has a lot of value. So your your personal honor may actually matter a lot more um, than just your money. And if you have a ton of money, you may not be able to make much more of it if you don't have much honor. And so um, the idea there is that. You could have an elite who's not rich, but they're going to have to have something else that sort of defines them as a person who controls a resource that's of social value. Sure. And obviously, one of the things that, that just keeps jumping out, I think the biggest resource, if you will, aside from money, would be political capital. Now, mm -hmm. oftentimes those go hand in hand, but I don't think that's always the case. What have you kind of seen in your studies about the huge kind of political capital that is held by a certain very small group of elites. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's two ways to look at this. One is to think about who politicians are. And the second is to think about how is it that politicians are influenced. And here, you know, a bunch of political scientists have done great work on this. So there's actually a young guy named Nick Carnes, who's at Duke, who's looked up like the class background of every person who's been in Congress over almost the last hundred years. And what he's found is that, like, the working classes, which makes up about 40% of Americans, has never made up more than about 3% of Congress. And so there's just this huge bias uh, towards wealthy people being our elected representatives. And some of this makes sense, like, you know, you might say, like, well, of course, that's because, you know, uh, you want people who are really, really successful to be our representatives. But I don't think that's really the story. I mean, I think part of it is that the ways in which uh, also, uh, uh, wealthy people can exert political influence through money in politics means that, you know, who are they going to give some cash to? Are they going to give uh, cash to somebody who they feel comfortable around or someone who they feel somewhat uncomfortable around? And so if I'm from a very wealthy background, you can call it classism that I'm more comfortable around people who are also wealthy. Or you could just say that, like, 
in general, we tend to be comfortable around people who have similar social backgrounds to us. And I think that, you know, wealthy people, you know, spend money uh, for candidates who are sort of similar to them. They also spend a ton of money to just buy influence. Um, and, you know, here I think my my political uh, leanings are kind of showing, but I, I hmm. think it's, you know, uh, it's been shown pretty well by the political scientists, the degree, the degree to which the overall policy preferences of Americans aren't really represented by politicians, but the policy preferences of the very wealthy are really well represented um, by politicians. And I think, you know, the, the, the question as to why that happens is basically that politicians themselves are wealthy and they primarily get their support um, through massive donations of other wealthy people. And so um, the kind of, you know, what we might think of as political capital or political resources are really not well distributed at all in the United States. I'd say historically this isn't that unique, um, but it is somewhat jarring if we want to think of ourselves as a kind of uh, a democracy. Yeah, I mean, what do you see as happening? Because I came across an article on Fabius Maximus. It's the first time I've come across this website. And they talked about how the 1% won this counter-revolution after trying to reverse things from the New Deal and the social programs after World War II and all this stuff. And we kind of just got satisfied as a middle class. And I was reading into the Powell Memorandum that was written in 1971, and it was entitled An Attack on American Free Enterprise System. And it basically laid out all these points on how businesses should protect themselves and they need to get rid of unions and they need to stop the influence of scholars on campuses. And it, it's this long document that's actually really scary. And it, so this has been going on for 40, 50 years. What do you think is going to happen to us? And how do you think America will finally, I guess, wake up or start these slow, low-violence revolutions again? Yeah, I mean, I think that, so, you, you mentioned unions. Like, the decline of unions in the United States explains about a third of the increase in inequality. So um, that alone is, like, a huge, huge uh, factor. Um, you know, I, I'm I'm kind of a cynic. And so, you know, when I look at this, and this is just, by the way, this is not fa this is not based in any research I've done. It's, like, an intuition I have about the world. Um and, you know, so you can kind of take it or leave it. But the the sets of New Deal programs that were really sort of central to helping redistribute money, so central to making rich people not as rich as they are today and uh, distributing things in non-market ways, so politicians redistributing funds, were part of like a broad social contract. But they were part of a broad social contract that excluded black people, I mean, and pretty systematically excluded uh, minorities. And to me, I don't think that it's that much of a surprise that Americans began to retreat from, you know, welfare state, New Deal redistributive programs at the end of the civil rights movement. That is that as uh, black Americans began to be able to make legitimate claims on the redistributive mechanisms of the state, Americans became less interested in redistribution. And, you know, I don't think Americans are also that unique in this position. So, you know, for me, it'll be really curious to see what happens to, say, the major welfare states of Scandinavia as they experience all kinds of immigration pressures and whether or not they want to be part of this massive redistributive scheme. And so, you know, part of the idea of these redistributive schemes is that there's a social contract. And the social contract says, like, 
maybe we should pool our risks. Some of us are going to be subjected to some pretty, you know, hard knocks in life. And it's a moral good to take care of people who then sort of are less lucky, lucky than I am. Uh, but a basic condition of the social contract is not that, like, I believe that I should redistribute my money to people who are not like me, but I should distribute them to people who are like me. And nations were a central part of this. But I think that as, you know, diversities within democracies increased and people who uh, lots of Americans began to think of as not like them were suddenly benefiting from social programs, we kind of stepped away from the idea that social programs were a good thing. And I think that this has been, the result of this has been like wide-based harm to people who actually previously were benefiting from such social programs. And so, you know, from my perspective, part of what needs to happen is a kind of revisiting of the basic idea of a social contract and how it is that we have obligations to one another, what it means to do that, and who counts as groups of people that we have obligations to. And, you know, this is not a low-level revolution kind of transformation, and instead it's like kind of like Americans rethinking their uh, their ideological basis and asking themselves – who besides myself am I responsible for? And, you know, I guess I'll end with this idea that we are, we've become sort of big believers in the Adam Smith notion that it's actually bad for other people to be anything but selfish. And this to me is really an astonishing notion that if I'm generous to other people, we're not going to have as much money and everyone will be worse off. And it's astonishing to me that people can hold this idea in their head while going to church on Sunday or mm. while trying to raise children where they believe that sort of just pursuing what I want is good. And if I am to do anything else, it's going to create inefficiencies rather than asking themselves, you know, what do I owe to others? This episode is brought to you by 99designs. In any creative endeavor, strong visuals are really going to push your brand forward. Say you're starting a website, a small business, a podcast, you need some awesome visuals, logos, just great design in general. And if you don't know where to get started, we're here to tell you it's 99designs. 99designs is the largest online marketplace for graphic design with over 310,000 registered designers from all over the world. All you have to do is go to the website, tell them about the design you need, and pick a price package that works for you. Then the fun really begins. Designers from around the globe will submit awesome designs and you'll give them feedback. Within a week, you'll pick your favorite and be the proud owner of a gorgeous new design. With thousands of designers at your fingertips, there's no limit to what you can get designed. I recently was looking to do a logo for a podcast and I really didn't know where to start. Reached out on 99designs and got dozens of submissions within a week. Truly awesome. So what is it that you need? Boost your brand's visibility with a t-shirt or drive more traffic with a sleek new banner ad or landing page. Just visit 99designs.com smart and get a $99 power pack of services free. That's 99designs.com smart free $99 power pack. Yeah, that's, it's really unbelievable when you look at it. And just last week as well, that Princeton Northwestern study came out that seemed to basically conclude that the U.S. is an oligarchy instead of a democracy. I mean, is that something that you're starting to notice as well? Or 
is it is that kind of just a i don't know like a like a fear driven conclusion there so i mean I, you know to put my cards on the table i run a, a research network through the russell sage foundation and the two guys who wrote that study are in my research network so oh, wow. um, so you I'm won't pretty, be biased uh, pretty close <laughs> with them uh and you know i think it's a it's an interesting idea which is you know what kind of political institutions do we have and they ask like if we look at what kinds of policies get enacted versus what are the overall policy preferences of America? What do we see? And, mm -hmm. you know, I think they're pretty convincing in showing that, like I said earlier, the policy preferences that get enacted are really close with the policy preferences of a pretty tiny group of people. And this suggests that maybe we aren't really a democracy. Um, maybe we're a kind of oligarchy. And I think that the recent Supreme Court decision um, is going to do, you know, a little bit to push us further down that road to have sort of unbridled money in politics. Um, and, you know, there have been some creative proposals to think through how it is that we might transform this. So there's a guy at Yale named Bruce Ackerman who said, like, what if we gave every American basically a credit card and they could only spend it on uh, some kind of political organization? It could be you could spend it on Greenpeace, you could spend it on the Democratic Party, the Republican Party, the fascist party. We don't care. But every American gets $50. And it may seem like that's going to cost us a lot. Like it may seem like with, you know, 300 million Americans, uh, you know, we're looking at billions and billions of dollars. But actually, if every American got $50 to spend, the amount of money that, you know, Congress would basically give in line item benefits to corporations for tax breaks, basically for campaign donations, would be far, far, far uh, uh, more than simply, you know, the seven and a half billion that they would have to spend um, in order to give everybody 50 bucks. And it would make all politicians really accountable because the only money that they could raise would be on a $50 basis to a group of constituents. And things like this, like, you know, I, I think of these as sort of like interesting thought experiments. Like, you know, are there little things that we could do uh, like this that might reconnect Americans with their uh, democracy, where we could also say, like, look, I'm kind of annoyed with what the Democratic Party is doing right now, and I'm just not going to give them money. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and if they don't get my $50 or my friend's $50, they're not getting anything. And so it, you know, it might push for greater degrees of accountability to the, to like, you know, the distribution of people in the United States, um, rather than say the one person who can spend hundreds of millions in order to have their very particularistic interests met. And that that fact that the, the whole political spending drives me nuts. And the thing is, I'm sure a lot of people listening, it drives them nuts. I don't understand. And since you're the professional and the smart person here, like, why can we not change that? I just, I mean, I understand that the power is in the hands of the rich, like, but I just, it, it reminds me of Game of Thrones when there's three slaves to every one master and it takes Khaleesi. It, I mean, don't, you know, please don't judge me, but to come in and basically empower them. Like, why can't we do this $50 per person thing or keep the, the, the limit of how much one person can donate to something small. Like they're trying, they were trying to do. I don't, I just don't get it. Yeah. I mean, you know, to be honest, I don't, I don't get it either. I mean, I think that like my view here is, is, you know, probably impassioned. I was going to joke like, 
you know, I can't talk about Game of Thrones to people because I, I don't watch it, but I've read all the books, so I never know. Uh, oh, <laughs> like, I never know. I never know where the uh, where the uh, that's really HBO funny. series is. So, really um, so I'm not going to mention it because I may like ruin the ending. Yeah, please don't. You know, where everybody turns into ponies, exactly, <laughs> like, or unicorns. Uh, they don't. don't um, <laughs> but the. I, I think of like these guys, uh, like, you know, if I think of like Scalia or Roberts, like I think of them as like they would be wonderful Stalinists. Like they are really great idealists. <laughs> um, and in some ways, like it, it's always funny to me to think of them as like the great champions of freedom um, because what they are champions of is their ideology. And um, their ideology basically tells them that markets can do no wrong. Mm. Um, and so the idea that a market could produce a problem is just an anathema. You know, it's something that seems totally unimaginable to them. And so they spend huge amounts of time trying to figure out ways in which, you know, markets actually are wonderful, wonderful things. So what they see when they see campaign limits is, oh my God, this is going to create a market inefficiency. If you actually limit the capacity for a market to work, what you're going to do is more harm than good. And often they'll cloak this in some language of freedom and that, you know, money is speech. Um, and I think that maybe they believe that. But I also think that they're, you know, they're deeply, deeply ideologically committed to a conservative view of like basically market efficiency and really immune, like totally immune in ways that I find really astonishing, which is why I think they would be great Stalinists to any evidence to the contrary. So any evidence to the contrary that markets don't always create efficiencies is something that they're just unwilling to see. And so I think that like this, this like deep ideological commitment, this like, you know, has done a huge amount of harm. And so part of the ways in which we can sort of think our way out of this is providing counter arguments to the ways in which like, you know, markets don't create efficiencies. And you know, some of it might suggest then ways in which they believe other things that you could offer up as examples. So like if markets create such inefficiencies, why don't we sell spouses, right? Why not have marriage markets that are literally markets, right? Hmm. Where people can bid on one another and decide their overall price. Why leave it up to such weird and ambiguous things as feelings um, <laughs> and why then not also make it so that you can exit these contracts whenever you wish? And so I think that the like, you know, uh, pushing on the ways in which markets aren't always efficient, they're actually often really, really inefficient. And it's not the case that rising tides uh, raise all boats. Sometimes people drown mm -hmm. um, with a rising tide is, you know, kind of a big uh, intellectual project for people to continue to work on in order to push forward um, the idea that like, uh, the distribution of money through wants and desires doesn't always create like a good and worthwhile society and that there are other things that we should do when we think about a good and worthwhile society that may be not so tied to one's voice through markets, but maybe one's voice through sort of political institutions. And if you begin to think that way, suddenly the $50 uh, proposal seems like a pretty good one because everybody has an equal political voice. And, uh, you know, in the kind of market way, also politicians then have to basically, they're going to have to buy votes with their actions 
from everybody rather than just say, you know, Sheldon Adelstein. The $50 per person thing sounds great, but that's like saying, all right, to solve this problem that everybody gets a vote, now we're going to give them money to influence things. Why can't we just set up something where it's, hey, you get $10,000 to do your ads, you get 10000 everybody gets the same amount, and then like what you just said, politicians have to buy the votes with their actions to their constituents. I mean, I think it's tricky because one thing is like, so... What if an ultra right wing racist anti-Semitic party wants $10,000 to run TV ads, right? And they basically say, look, we're a legitimate political party. Um, you know, we got some votes and these other things like give us for the federal money for this. And so I think like, you know, those people are going to have some votes with the $50. So there's going to be, you know, the ultra right wing fascist or uh, uh, anti-Semitic racist who are going to give $50 um, to some organization. Um, but they're not going to give it to, you know, they're not going to get that much. So one thing would be like, how is it that we decide the dimensions of of political parties that get legitimate support mm. from the government? And then the second is that, like, if the state decides the di- distribution of funds to itself, one becomes a little bit worried. right? <laughs> like, yeah. Um, and so, you know, I, I don't know that Ackerman's solution is ideal. I mean, I think it's like it's a kind of utopian uh, ideal. But at least it pushes us to think about, like, what are the dimensions uh, that we want? Because, you know, there is a dimension of Ackerman's proposal that suggests that markets can have some benefits. And one of the benefits is that if people don't do a particularly good job one year, they're accountable to the people the next year. And people use market mechanisms, which is their $50 or their feet, you know, basically, to walk away from that party and to support somebody else. Interesting. Yeah. And and I, I want to throw this out there to just all the listeners. You know, we kind of have gone down this political path. And I think our where we stand has come out. But if somebody <laughs> out there is and out of the 10,000 plus people that are listening, somebody and plenty of people probably are disagreeing. Email us and say, hey, interview this guy. And because I'd like to hear the opposite side because there's a lot of people that present it. And maybe it's just a little bubble I live in, but I don't understand how there is this opposite side. So I just had to throw that out there. And then kind of steering away from the political aspect, getting back to inequality in general, I want to play a little bit of devil's advocate and say, you know, Perhaps no time in history is opportunity as great, with educational access being pretty much open, oftentimes free with you know, Khan Academy and all the, I don't know, things that John does online with coding. <laughs> and You can teach yourself. Um, there's a lot of resources available. The internet that is you can go into a library and pretty much have. Why can't we just say, look, may the best man win. Uh, go work hard. It, this is America. Make your own a future and that's what you know the democratic and all that, that's what it's all about yeah i mean I, I think there's there's like i would have two basic responses to this the first is like look at the data over the last 40 years and what you see is that america has one of the lowest levels of mobility of any industrialized country in the world um the only place that might be worse than us is britain so you know, I often joke that the American dream is live and well in Denmark, um, where there's a lot more mobility than there is in the United States. So the first thing I would say is like, you know, if things are so great, why does the U.S. have such low levels of mobility compared to other industrialized nations? The second piece of this that I'd say, like, is instead of like just looking at the data, 
think for a moment about two kids in the world. Um, so I live in New York City and I live um, in an apartment building in the basement of my apartment building, well, not the basement, actually the first floor of the apartment building. It's like a daycare center. You can send your kid there at the age of three. I mean, I, three months, excuse me, not three. Uh, and I think it's something like $25,000 a year. Um, and, you know, so you could start there. And then when the kid's four, send them to, you know, one of the better private schools here in the city of New York, which you're looking at like thirty to 40000 And then they could spend their years uh, through 12th grade at such private schools uh, at around, you know, 40000 um, plus their preschool years. You're looking at half a million dollars in total investment. And then maybe they go to Columbia, um, where it costs, again, maybe, let's say, 60000 a year by four years. So you're looking minimum investment, three quarters of a million dollars. And that's actually before, you know, the kid uh, has any other differences between it and another kid. So, they, you know, not assuming the kid goes to Europe on vacations or has sure. some kind of summer enrichment programs. I mean, from my perspective, it isn't it isn't unimaginable that that kid has a million dollars invested in it. You could take another kid who goes to public school in the city of New York uh, for a period of time. And the likely investment in that kid is probably $200,000. And you should ask yourself, like, would you expect a million dollar investment to have the same return as a $200,000 investment? And, you know, for me, actually, it's almost shocking that like, the kid with a million dollar investment isn't five times better off. Um, <laughs> uh, but, you know, this is one of the great challenges because I think that like, you know, the parents who are investing that much money in their kids are not bad parents, right? They're not terrible people for creating massive inequalities by investing so much in their kids. In fact, they're doing what we think parents should do, which is to invest a lot in their kids. But I also think that we operate under a kind of fantasy in believing that the average kid who has so much less invested in him is somehow going to be able to perform at an equivalent or even far greater level than the kid who has a tremendous amount invested in him. And we can all come up with examples like this. People are actually really fond of being like, you know, let's talk about Mark Zuckerberg or Bill Gates. And, you know, my reply is always, you know, Mark Zuckerberg went to one of the most elite boarding schools in the country. Bill Gates is from one of the wealthier families in the Pacific Northwest, you know, yeah, let's talk about them. <laughs> um, fine, they didn't graduate from Harvard. They were they were pretty well off um, uh, to start with. But we could even take other examples of real rags to riches kinds of stories. But I think that the thing is that, like, it's just not common. It's just not typical. And when we look at the mobility statistics, we know it isn't. And we think if we just think for a moment and ask ourselves if there are parents who are investing millions of dollars in their kids versus parents who don't have money to invest in their kids, why are we operating under the fantasy that those two children basically are equivalent and have are starting at the same point in time in, in terms of like their capacity to succeed in life? There's going to be some kids who either through really hard work, luck, or something else, you know, are an exception to the overall trend, but they're going to be a massive exception to the overall trend of people are able to invest huge amounts of money in their kids and that yields rewards. And so for me, when looking at inequality, one of the reasons why I'm anxious about the rising inequality that's driven by the rich people getting much, much, much richer is that it allows those who are getting so much richer to invest that much more in their kids. 
And I think that those people are not doing terrible things to their children by investing money in them. But I think the consequence for society might be kind of bad. And so we should ask ourselves, do we want rich people to be able to invest millions and millions in their children? Or do we want to think about ways such as taxes that would allow us to invest across a whole host of people in society? And would we be better off if we made that broad-based investment and gave lots of people a chance rather than those people who were just lucky enough to sort of come out of the womb of a family of, that already had resources? And Sometimes I think we're doing harm. Well, and is there any, I mean, just hearing that, I'm like, that can never happen. I mean, it's just in human nature, I think, to look out for yourself. I mean, for the most part, when I say that, obviously, we are kind of community-based creatures. And so we'll look out for maybe our small pod or our secondary family, whatever you want to call it. But to say, hey, look, you you have, you make $2 million a year. I don't know. And we're going to take a large portion of that for the global good or the national good. It just, I, it's never going to happen because there's people out there that believe the world's going to end in 10 years or they're building bunkers and all this stuff. So they're, they're going to hoard their resources. What What is your response to that? So first of all, I'd say like, it might never happen except that it did. I mean, what was the marginal tax rate among the wealthiest Americans in the mid to late 1960s? I have no idea. 91%. Oh, it's way low. No, <laughs> 91%. 91%. So off money that you made over $1.2 million, you were taxed 91 cents on the dollar, right? And so the idea that America is unable to sustain really high tax rates on wealthy people is just not true. We actually have plenty of evidence. Now, I've picked a point in time where it was really, really high, but actually through the 60s and 70s, and actually through all of the 60s, the marginal tax rate was above 70% um, on the highest earners. And before someone jumps up and says, yeah, but what was the economy like? I'll say the economy was doing really well. Like, actually, it was one of the periods of the highest degree of sustained job growth that America's ever seen. And so, you know, one thing I'd say is like, it actually has happened before. Um, the second thing is that like, you know, we don't actually have to do this redistribution solely through taxes. Um, so another way that we can think about doing it is ask like, how is it that wealthy people have become so wealthy? And uh, there's a great economist uh, who sort of looked at the tracking of the average person's wages and productivity. And what they've shown is that like, if you look from the 40s through about the 70s, Productivity increases led to wage increases for workers. So as workers became more productive, they made more money. Starting in the mid to late 1970s, there was a total divorce of workers' wages and productivity. So American productivity has continued to increase at the rate that it did from the 40s through the 70s, but American workers' wages are stagnant. And so the one thing you would ask is, like, where is all the money going? That is, if productivity is going up and workers' wages are stagnant, where's the money going relative to the increased productivity? And the answer is that, like, managers have seized it. They've actually created political institutions that have allowed them to extract greater value from companies. And so, you know, another way to think about this is that the person who makes $2 million a year doesn't really make $2 million a year. They make half a million a year, and they've worked to construct new political institutions and economic institutions that have helped them extract another million and a half that probably should have gone to somebody else who's actually more productive than they were in the 70s, but has seen no wage increase themselves. And so, like, you know, I think that it doesn't, like, 
you know, it's never going to happen. We're not going to get back to 91% marginal tax rates. Sure, I'm fine with accepting that. I mean, I think we could get back to, you know, slightly higher tax rates. I think it would be a, a hard political road. But the other thing we can ask is like, why is it that American workers are so divorced from their productivity raises? Why is it that workers haven't seen real wage increases um, so since basically the 1970s? The, the trends here are kind of complicated. I mean, maybe just to quickly get into them, men's wages have declined over the period. Women's wages have increased considerably over the period because they used to be really discriminated against. So overall, people's wages are slightly up since the 70s. Um, but that's primarily because women have en- used to be really discriminated against. And if you look at the wages of men, they're down and, you know, productivity is way up. And so, like, basically, you know, there's there's a way of thinking about this. Like, I tend to think about it as wage theft, that, you know, workers are getting a lot more done for every hour that they're working and they're not making any more money. And people at the very top of the distribution are making a lot more money. So it's pretty easy to see where the money's going. That was awesome. Yeah, I, I really, I really appreciate that. I mean, that's kind of, and again, there's probably people out there that might disagree, but that's the reason we kind of started this show because you've done years and decades of research and we got a good kind of snippet in a logical, concise manner right there. So I really appreciate it. And I know that we have taken up a little bit more time than we had estimated, but uh, we tend to get on these conversations and they're, they're amazing. So I really wanted to say thank you for kind of joining us. And we didn't dive in too much to your book, Privilege, The Making of an Adolescent Elite at St. Paul's School. But I do want to say to our listeners that kind of everything we've touched on today is explained, but in a, a, a maybe a more congruent narrative in that book. And it's really fantastic. So we'll put a link to that on Smart People Podcast for those that are interested into this topic of elitism. And, uh, and Seamus, I wanted to see if there was any other places that you write and people can kind of follow along what you do, your research and, and things like that. Sure. Um, you know, I've written a, a bunch of stuff in Time Magazine and Al Jazeera, English, and, and uh, the New York Times. So I can shoot you guys some links if you want, um, but that's probably the best way. And some of the stuff that I've talked about today, I've actually, I've written there, and there are links to the research of mine and others that might be interesting to people. Great. And what's your uh, your your website address? SeamusKhan.com. Okay. Uh, so, uh, and yeah, and it's uh, S-H-A-M-U-S. K-H-A-N. You can see the Irish and the Pakistani in there, although it's <laughs> spelled in an American way. You know? I love it. It's the mixing bowl. Yeah, exactly. Well, again, thank you so much. Really appreciate it uh, for your time being on the show. Yeah, it was my pleasure. It was fun. Welcome back. Hope you guys enjoyed that conversation with Seamus. Don't forget, you can reach out to us a hundred different ways at smart people pod on twitter smart people podcast on facebook and you can email us at smart people podcast at gmail.com it's not really a hundred but it was only three i think i, I think wanted more it to importantly, sound better well maybe not more importantly we definitely want to hear from you but tell other people and we're trying to still trying to grow this bad boy even though we've you know we've gotten pretty high up there every now and again no, it'd, it'd be perfect if people just told one friend. If every single person told one person... We would double our We numbers. would double it. How amazing <laughs> would that be? Thanks for reaching out and letting us... We actually... We had somebody the other day, I think he's an English professor. 
email us and give us a few pointers or tips or just recommendations. I thought that was cool. It was pretty awesome advice because it's going to help us in our way of getting our message across. Is it actually going to help? It is. Do you think we're going to change it? I hope so. I mean, it takes a lot of work. Otherwise, he better email us again and say, hey, we didn't notice any changes. <laughs> That's what I told him. I'm going to go ahead and need you to uh, to listen to my email this time. Send John a congratulatory email for getting a new job that's pretty badass and he's actually gonna not only enjoy it but be good at it yeah i'm gonna love it guys don't forget to support the show head over to 99designs.com smart to get a 99 dollars power pack of services for free today